At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 584th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Greg Peterson coming to you from the Urban Farm in the heart of Phoenix, Arizona, and I'm here with Bill McDormand. Hello, Mr. McDormand. Hello, hello. Um, it's nice to see you. <laughs> <laughs> right? This is the first time we've done this on Zoom. Yeah. How many C chats have we done? And, oh, my gosh. Probably 50. Well, yeah. It's good to see you. So, oh, thanks, Greg. Right. I catch you, man. Yeah. So tonight we're talking about the, I think, what was it? Wise, where, and where force of seed saving. And I'm not quite sure what that means, but uh, let's just go ahead and jump in and see where it goes. So tell me a little bit about seed saving and what it means, Bill. Well, for me, it's only the most important thing humans should be doing right now. Amen to that. I mean, we need, if it, depending on your view of the world, it, um, there are some things that need to change. And in my mind, when I think about all the things, especially the big and the major things that need to change, seed saving would help them all, if yeah. not fundamentally change them. You know, they could bring healthy food into our lives. They could shore up our global food supply lines mm -hmm. so that we don't have shortages like we just saw in Texas. Yep. People big had time. their own big time. You know, they, you know, people always seem amazed, Greg, and you've been saying this for years that um, <laughs> yeah. they're surprised when grocery stores run out of food in six or eight hours and there's no more food for days to right. come in. Right. It's just such a fragile system. Yeah. You know, and we know the foods, we like the food more. People all over the world like their fresh tomatoes and things better. So it's, mm -hmm. you know, that would make us feel better. And if you get involved in the seed saving part, you're automatically building community usually yeah. because you've got more seeds than you know what to do with. So <laughs> right. you have to share them. Well, you, you know, know this that goes to exactly what I've been saying for over a decade. And that's this whole notion of lack. Yeah. They're not being enough. The right. only place that that lives is between our ears. Right. Because when I look at the abundance in that picture behind you, the right. abundance of uh, sunflowers and the picture behind me, these right. are peach trees in, in my yard. And I will get hundreds of pounds of peaches off of those trees here in the next 90 days or so. It's just, you know, there's this level of abundance in fruit and seed that is just mind blowing. Well, we've got all these myths that um, make people think that they can't or shouldn't save their own seeds. And so, yeah. I mean, even if you can only afford the space or the time, the energy or the money to grow one plant in one pot, mm -hmm. grow an einkorn for us. We need to increase the seeds and I'll send you an einkorn seed and you can send me 50 back. And you're helping farmers, you know, that want hundreds of pounds to start growing, you know, new drought tolerant, 
you know, higher protein, ancient and heritage grains, which are all the rage now because they seem ooh. to cause less problems as far as gluten's concerned. Yeah. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Send me some. I'll plant a row or two of them here at the urban farm. Well, rows are great. We want whatever. You know, we've got a heritage grain program going at the Rocky Mountain Seed Lines, and that's what we're doing. We, we, I think we have 185 people now, you know, growing grains out for us. And the idea is we send you seed, and then you send us back twice as much. And then we can send that out to other people. And that way our whole region can, number one, have enough seed to, grow, to give to our farmers at some point. Mm -hmm. And we need those farmers and we need that large scale. But, you know, large scale farmers aren't good at starting with 50 seeds. Right. You know, so, so it's up to us, the gardeners, to do that. And even one plant. So everybody can do this. And I'm of the opinion now, after watching this for a long time, is that if you do that, if you grow something like an einkorn plant in a pot in your house mm -hmm. and save the seed from it and replant them and start to share them in your community, you're going to change everything. It'll change <laughs> your own consciousness right. about the earth and what you know we're all going through and how fragile it is. It will maybe uh, inspire your kids or your grandkids, right? Because they're going to say, Grandma, what is that? You know? And it is the absolute essential thing we need right now to reclaim our, our own local food and grain economies, yeah. which is so important in the face of climate change and political disruption. And so, wow, that's why seed saving is so important. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, without local seeds, you can't have local food. Right. Right. I, I spoke uh, at the Slow Seed Summit, oh, they yeah, called it, yeah. for that? Slow Food USA. And that, mm -hmm. I, I modified the argument. You can't have slow food without slow seeds. <laughs> you know, it's I, just part and parcel of it in the yeah. end. And so, you know, it's time to have every slow food member and grower start to save some seeds. And it's really easy. You know, we've talked about that. There are five vegetables that are the most popular. They are. Um, that are largely self-pollinating. So you mm -hmm. don't have to worry about them crossing. You don't have to worry about anything. You just save the seeds when they go to seed. And something like lettuce goes to seed anyway. Oh know? my gosh. So I let lettuce go to seed in my front yard. And last, last year sometime, I was walking the dog and the house across the street from me had a lettuce plant growing in their lawn. And it's from your lettuce going to seed, right? Of course. Yeah. It had to be. Well, they have the little parachutes. And again, so you just can't help but be involved in your community, you know? And it doesn't matter what the politics are of your neighbor. If you're both, you know, sharing they're lettuce. eating. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you're, if you're growing gardens and sharing food and seeds, who cares? Well, you know, going back to the abundance thing, I had this very interesting experiment happen to me about three years ago, I had this guy who claimed, oh yeah, I know how to plant seeds, no problem. And so I, I wanted him to plant out a couple of rows of carrots here at the urban farm. And I gave him six ounces of carrot seeds that I had saved from the year before. You know, it was like that much. So it was, it was a fair amount of lettuce seeds. I figured he would take, you know, 50, 75, 150 seeds and plant them. He planted the whole thing. He planted all you know, 80,000 seeds, which is probably what was in there. And I ended up with a forest of carrots in my front yard a couple of years ago. And, you know, they, is, they were- Is so that a class one error? Uh, no, it's not. It's magic. <laughs> so it could have been a class one error. In permaculture, we have class one errors, and that's like errors you can't fix. Well, this is a, this, this didn't 
net us any carrots to eat, but what it did net us was a five gallon bucket of carrot seeds that I harvested. There's that abundance piece, right? Yeah, see, here it is. And the other thing that it did is it wild planted carrots in my front yard. So this was three years ago that this happened. And Heidi, literally an hour and a half ago, Heidi harvested some carrots that were growing wild in our front garden beds for our dinner tonight. And I cleaned them and I cut them up for our, we're making some Thai food tonight. And again, one of my favorite things to do is to let things just grow wild in my yard. Now, you know, I planted carrots. I planted parsley a decade ago. I planted basil a decade, decade ago. I planted nasturtiums two decades ago. And I have the food forest set up here that they just come back year after year after year, you know, doing the circular regenerative system rather than the flat one where I have to buy seeds every year and plant seeds every year and harvest the food. And then, oh yeah, I got to go to the seed catalog again and buy more seeds. Well, we're in an interesting era still. I went to the Johnny's Selected Seeds website a few days ago, and there's a big sign up saying, sorry, if you're a regular gardener, uh, we're not selling seeds to you right now. We're yeah. overwhelmed by our commercial growers. Mm-hmm. And you know there was talk of a waiting list. But so what happens if you go to buy your seeds and they're not there? And what happens if they're out? I've been um, searching through seed sites today for us, for the Great American Seed Up, looking mm-hmm. for alternative sources. And it's amazing how many things are out of stock, especially yeah. in larger quantities. Right. And so that's kind of what we're talking about that, you know, that's another one of those problems that the world is facing, increased population, disrupted global supply lines, you know, so it makes sense to, you know, bring this back in. And I th- and I really think a lot of people don't or haven't thought about it because we've almost been trained not to. Right. You know, we, getting food we, is so easy. Well, and we think it's so complicated and mm-hmm. so, you know, that we're going to make a mistake. And that just couldn't be further from the truth. And right. one of the things I saw the other this past week that I'm really excited about is that one of the best breeders and, and, and teachers we've ever had at our seed schools, uh, Joseph Lofthouse, mm. it has just written a book. And it's just it's just about to come out. It's called Land Race Gardening. Ooh. And and I was lucky enough to hear a presentation that Joseph gave at the Organic Seed Alliance Conference, the Seed Growers Conference. And it was really, it was really quite funny because, you know, the Organic Seed Growers Conference is all about technical and getting your, you know, your chops up and learning from experts and learning all the rules and learning how to breed from breeders and keeping complicated and starting complicated programs that keep really good data and so on and so forth, and which is really important for them because they're growing at large scale. Right. That's what they're training people to do. And you need that uniformity and all the rules to do that. So they plop Joseph down in a, in a breeding. He's got a reputation now. I think he's on the boards of the Open Source Seed Initiative and the, the Galactic Tomato Group. And I mean, you know, the World Tomato Growers, I guess that's what it's called. So anyway, he gets invited. He, he gives his, his uh, workshop and basically says, um, when they ask him about uh, what specific and exact protocols do you have to set up your seed growing and, and, and which rules do you follow and what data do you collect? He said, no, no, <laughs> I plant, I mix everything together that I get, whether they're my beans or my melons. You know, he's got rice projects. He's got all these projects going. I mix them all together. I mean, if I, he says, I don't mix up cantaloupes with watermelons, but all the watermelons I mix together. Mm-hmm. And then I just plant them all. And I let, I want them to mix. And I only save 
the seeds from the melons I really like to eat. <laughs> That's what I'm, and, and that doesn't take writing down anything. Right. It's really, and he said, once I started doing that, it just freed me to get involved again. And if you think about it, that's what um, uh, humans have been doing for 10,000 years. That's how we got the whole food system. There's no way to argue that this isn't efficient and effective. And Look tasty. at what we're eating. We're eating parsnips and carrots and all these things that were once wild plants that have been bred in this Joseph Lofthouse land race gardening method. And so, you know, when I first started teaching about seed saving, it was really hard to convince people that um, you didn't need the experts to do this. You know, you just get people started. And that was a hard thing. Get people started. It's so magical, you know, and it's so abundant, as you say. But now we've got experts writing books <laughs> right. that have gone through their whole lives and come back around and decided this is really where it's at. And I love that. I think we're it's the dawn of a new era. It's 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 a magical era. You mentioned um, you mentioned the Great American Seed Up. You can find out about it at greatamericanseedup.org. Uh, just a quick story about that. We, Bill Bell, and I were having a conversation one day about six years ago about how do we impact our local seed economies? How do we make the biggest difference we can? And we put together the Great American Seed Up. It was a a great big bazaar in a ten thousand square foot room where people can could come and scoop up their own seeds. And it was magic. Uh, you know, imagine uh, two years ago, we had 800 people in a room scooping seeds. It was, the, the energy was palpable. You could feel it in there. And then COVID happened last year. And so what we did is we had to put together our uh, do-it-yourself kits. So we have what's called seed up in a box. And these are open pollinated seeds. And I think we have what about 80 different varieties. So you can find out about that at greatamericanseedup.org. But this this goes back to a conversation that you and I had, Bill, about, uh, oh my gosh, about nine years ago at my seed school in Tucson in 2011. And that was how do we create systems of local seed viability? And so let me just throw that at you. How do we create systems for local seed viability? Well, you know, we're started from a really alienated, I would call it technological, you know, industrial, globalized food system. And where people don't even know, mm -hmm. you know, that they can save their own seeds. They've been pretty much taught that. The market set it up with hybrids and now they're starting to patent varieties, you know, that discourage people from trying to uh, save their own seeds. Um, even the popular seed books that we have for sale, uh, Susan Ashworth, Seed to Seed, you know, are uh, hugely complicated, you know, and that book in particular starts the table of contents um, is in Latin. Oh, my gosh. Because they want you to learn, you know, the Latin names of the families. And, and that's important. You know, you can, that's all good information. But if you just want to start to learn to save your own seeds, you know, you may not want to shell out more for a book than you do all your seeds the first year. Right. Like, like why do that? So we're starting from a pretty, you know, uh, uh, pretty hard space to do all of this. And so, you know, I think what we figured out, Greg, was that, um, uh, first of all, you got to get seeds to people to start with. Mm-hmm. 
And 90% of the cost of a packet of seeds is in the packaging and the whole distribution system that we have. If you order them over the internet, or if you go down to your hardware store, mm-hmm. you know? And so what we did was we went way up in the chain to almost the farmers themselves. Turns out that there are open pollinated land race varieties, the old, the best of what we had in this country two generations ago, some of which is still being grown in large scale. And there are a few people that contract them to grow and they bring it in and clean it and bag it and make it available. And so we went to those people. This is almost farm direct and brought them straight into Phoenix, big bags of seeds. <laughs> and then we poured it into, in this case, buckets. I think all we uh-huh. could get were popcorn buckets, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Keep it cheap. Set up a huge big room with tables filled with popcorn buckets filled with seeds with scoopers in them. And then we figured out how much it would cost per scoop for seeds. So it's like, you know, you're, it's 90% less cost just off the bat because you're doing your own packaging. We have little bags there. We have little cards that explain, you know, it's got, it tells what it is and how to grow it. So it's like a seed packet and people would scoop, grab the card, put it in a bag and then line up. And then we would, you know, check them out. And as you said, 800 people, you know, going at it at once, it wasn't just incredible. And we've been doing this for a number of years now. And what we realize is that there are now thousands of people who have come down to the, these seed ups. And while they're um, uh, getting ready to go through the lines and, and scoop out their seeds, um, either before and after, they're invited to take courses on how to do it. And we try to inspire people. We teach them how to save their seeds, how to store them. Mm-hmm. Kari does a great class on how to start them. So we get just people off the street that kind of think it's a good idea. You know, there's a lot of prepper kind of thinking going on. People are dumb. Everybody's a little bit nervous, Mm -hmm. you know, don't know what else is coming down the pike. And so people would show up and we could run them through in just a couple hours, get them all the seeds they need, teach them how to save them, teach them how to store them and send them on their merry way. And now we've done that. You know, you keep doing that for a few years in your city. And, and I really believe we're making an impact. Oh, huge. Yeah. And now we've, I think we've got even a bigger potential for that impact because of COVID. You know, we can't get 800 people together anymore. So what we did was it, uh, uh, design mini seed ups in groups of 10. So even as small as 10, as you got a local seed library or a, a community garden or just friends around you or your prepper club, whatever it is, you can order in batches of 10. You know, the people still have to scoop them out, still have to put them in their bags. So, you know, we don't do all the packaging work. I mean, it, it costs more for us to do this than it did just to pour it into buckets. But we pass on huge savings to be able to do that. And you can order these online and you can do seed ups now wherever you want. And so when we invite that's what we want, isn't it, Greg? Is seed ups yeah. all over the place. Well, and that's, you know, the, the first conversation I had with you back in 2011 was how do we put a seed bank in Phoenix? And I went out and bought this huge chest freezer, 25 cubic foot chest freezer and filled it full of seeds. And okay, now we have a seed bank, but what's the problem with that? Uh, They die (laughs) eventually. Eventually they die, but also they're all in my garage in this freezer. Right. The climate's changing and nobody's growing them. So that's where we went to the idea of how do we spread it around and how here's the question I have for y'all out there. And I'm, you know, if you have questions for us, shoot them over to us. But my question for you is how do you invigorate your seed local seed economy? You know, do you start a seed library? Do you start a seed bank? You know, what, what are we going to do? Cause we're in this together. 
we have to figure out this together. We, we can't count on a government agency to figure this out for us. We have to do it ourselves. Yeah, I'm afraid the government agencies involved in seeds are all under stress. Nobody's coming to help. I don't believe that doesn't mean there aren't good people and yeah. good things being done all over. But, um, you know, I mean, our uh, recent vice president does not believe in evolution. How do you run an agriculture department with seed planning for the oh, next thousand years that involves evolution at every step of the way and changing our crops to adapt to the new realities? If you don't believe in evolution, I mean, that's just one of the funding problems I think they, yeah. they've, they've had. So you mentioned, you mentioned earlier five easy crops to, to save. What yeah. are they? Peas, beans, tomatoes, peppers, lettuce. Oh, so they're all are they're all selfers. Can you say what that is? Well, self pollinating means that the flower structure itself is physically designed so that they exchange pollen and go through sexual reproduction before the flowers even open. Mm -hmm. By and large, and nature never say never. <laughs> but what it means is that you know you don't have to worry about you know somebody three or four blocks away growing a tomato you don't like and having that cross with your tomato in your backyard. Mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, it's just save the seeds. And so, you know, and that's what we encourage beginners. Um, learn how to get, pick one crop you're passionate about. People always say, so what do I yeah. start with? Start with the thing you love the what most. What you love to eat. There you yeah. go. Yeah, and learn how to do that. And and fortunately, you know, uh, peas, beans, lettuce, you know, uh, tomatoes and peppers are in the top 10 of what most Americans like. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty easy. We can, you know, knock out a lot of stuff just by getting people to do their favorites. So peas, beans, lettuce, right. and peppers, those are super easy to save. You take the peas, beans, lettuce, and peppers, uh, the, the bean, peas and beans, those are just the bean pods, right? Right. Yeah, just let, let them dry as much as you can, yeah. And then break them open and you have the seeds. Yeah. Not well, everybody that, realizes that. We had people come into the yeah. Native Seed Search store and bought beans, yellow woman, Indian beans, big bag, five pound bag. We used to sell the beans. She was going to cook with them. They're in our food section. And then she was at the cash register and said, um, so where do I buy the seeds for these? You know, yeah. it's like, well, we just don't know. You just bought five pounds. <laughs> right. Plant away. Exactly. You know, and so that there's a lesson, mm -hmm. you know, almost everything that you see around you, you could probably plant. People ask me that all the time. Can I plant stuff from the grocery store? Sure. If you really love it. Yeah, you know, not? they say, well, can I plant, can I save the seeds from a pepper I get at the grocery store? Well, you know, it's really um, likely that it's a hybrid pepper. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's, you know, an intentional cross. And what that means is that the offspring that you will, you know, you're going to save those seeds and plant them. That may not look like the parents. It's because they were, that's a new cross. And so, um, but it might be fun. You might get something you really like anyway. And so I always encourage you, no matter what, if you really enjoy something, yeah, like it's the best pepper or tomato you've bitten into at a restaurant or wherever it is, I always try to save some seeds and bring them home. This system is so magical and so adaptable that, yeah, try it. See what happens. So lettuce seeds, those are super simple. It goes, to, it puts up a flower and right. you grab the seeds. They're little parachutes. Yep. You know, and they'll start flying away. And those little parachutes, actually, lettuce seeds come in 10 packs. In other words, they're sort of organized so that the seeds are fused together. You know, and I've uh, had people in class say, so Bill, how do I get those all apart into the clean little lettuce seeds I buy in packets? You know, so it looks like that. And I go, I don't. I don't right. care. 
I plant yeah. tin packs. Right. I plant them dirty. I mean, so again, this is some of this cult of expertise. This mm-hmm. is some of what we've been taught about seeds in an industrial system. The, you know, you need the seeds individual. You need them clean if you're selling packets on racks or usually through mail order. I get mm-hmm. that. But as home gardeners, we're free from all of that. We can just do what we want and get it to work in in the best way that we figure out. And so if you like that, you can do it. But if you don't want to do that work, you know, I think many uh, lettuce seed savers now have figured out in most areas of the country, you just don't save them at all. You just let your lettuce go to seed and that's it. Next yeah. next spring, there's itself. some of it coming up again. That's right. I have regularly, I have lettuce growing in my lawn. Well, and does all of it come up? No. Does a lot of it get destroyed? Yes. Some of it freezes, dries, whatever. But guess what? The ones that figure it out in your yard, that's what you're looking for anyway. Yeah. You're yeah. congratulations. <laughs> you are an expert seed breeder. You have selected for the absolute best lettuce for your yard by simply ignoring it. We're so, just like lucky to be here, you know. <laughs> exactly. All right. So we talked about four of them. The fifth one is tomatoes, and they're a little bit different on how you save the seeds, but it is super still super simple. Can you just touch well, real quickly on I mean, if you're eating a tomato sandwich in Portugal, you know, and the tomatoes just blowing your way, you can just reach into the tomato and pull out a couple of seeds and put them in a napkin and bring them home and they'll work. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you can just take the seeds out. Um, but a better way to save them is to do what we call the wet method. And what that means is that if you'll take a tomato and cut it at the equator, so, you know, set it up like the North Pole and the South Pole. The North Pole is where, you know, it came off the, the vine. Yep. Cut it at the equator and then squeeze out all that jelly stuff with the seeds into a jar. Mm-hmm. And if you can do that for with several, say you're saving, you know, for several on a plant that you really like um, and get, you know, a little, I use um, little teeny pint jars and I get about this much stuff in the bottom. I pour in just a little bit of water so that I make sure they don't dry out in a five to seven day period. And then um, I put it, I stir it up and I put it in a place um, that I wanna be, where you're washing the dishes out of the sun, you know, in your home, that someplace you won't forget about them. And uh, look at it every day and stir it. And after two or three or four days, depending on where you are and how warm it is, a white um, fungus will grow on the top. That's bread mold. That's telling you the whole thing's working. Inside, embedded in the tomato and that jelly is a yeast, a wild yeast that will start to break down the jelly. And so that jelly keeps seeds actually from germinating. That's why they don't germinate in the tomato when it's warm and moist. And so, you you know, you want to get rid of that if you can. I mean, it'll dry and crack off if you just save the seeds. But an easier way is to let that natural yeast eat it and break it down. So after three or four days, you stir it up and the good seeds fall to the bottom. And any that aren't good or haven't been fully formed and all the Mm -hmm. other gunk floats to the top and you've got like seeds at the bottom. So what I do then is pour more water into my jar. I stir it up good and I pour more water into the jar and that helps separate it even more and the good seeds go to the bottom. Then I pour out all that gunk on the top. Be sure not to pour out your seeds. You know, we just stop before you get to the seeds at the bottom, fill it up with water again, let the seed settle, pour it out again, do that two or three times and they're clean. So then I pour them through a strainer to get you know the, all the water out of them. And then I take that strainer and I pop it onto a paper towel. 
upside down and I get a little tomato seed cookie, I call <laughs> it. And that starts to dry out over the next two or three days. And then you can rub those with your hand to get them all, um, you know, apart. And voila, you've got your tomato seeds like they would come from a seed company. In fact, they've just been treated for almost all the known seed-borne diseases. Oh, that nice. process of the fungus and the yeast actually treats those seeds. It's a natural, it's the way tomatoes rot in among themselves if they fell onto the jungle floor. They learned how to do this a million years ago, and we're just kind of helping that process. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, and, and Penn, Penn Parmenter, uh, uh, she does uh, tomatoes at 10,000 foot elevation in Colorado. She uses coffee filters. Yeah, that's so, good. Yeah, those work. Yeah, no, well. that's a really great idea um, because the paper's a little more smooth and the seeds don't stick as much. But mm -hmm. you know what? Everything works. Yeah. I, I put it on uh, toilet paper one time and uh, I couldn't get them back off. Mm -hmm. You know, it they were stuck and they were just kind of meshed in there. I just planted the whole toilet paper thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's really, nice. I mean, there's no, you know, it's hard to make a mistake. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, we have a bunch of questions here. Uh, we had a couple of questions come in before uh, we actually started up. And one of them, I think, and uh, forgive me if I got this wrong, but I think this came from Holly. Uh, on your seed hunting trips, how do you decipher a location? And I'm assuming this is for wild flowers and that kind of stuff. Well, it could be, or, you know, I went to Siberia looking for tomatoes. Oh yes. You know, so that was because I'd, I, I had eaten a Siberian tomato and I went to Siberia looking for more. Tomatoes are so popular. I had my small seed company, High Altitude Gardens. And so I was looking for something that would work in the, you know, that was cold tolerant, that tasted good, that was, would work high in the mountains. And so sometimes I've had really specific ideas um but now i and and i decide to go collect wildflower seeds based on the season uh, you know so i know yes. when they're going to be ready and mm -hmm. you can't always nail that but you can um time travel a bit so say i go back to idaho now where i know my backyard and i could collect wild seeds if i get there and it's been a late spring and i'm there too early i'll actually go down an elevation in a river valley where spring came sooner Mm -hmm. two weeks to a month sooner. Or if I'm too early I'll um, or too late, I'll go up. You can climb a thousand feet All and move right. a month in climate in the mountains. And so, you know, there's little tricks like that. So, but now I, I, I my answer to that question generally is um, I try to find seeds everywhere I go, every right? time I go there. Yeah. yeah. And I always take some on trips to, uh, to trade. So that way you don't have to go looking for them yourself, but you just bring up the conversation. If there's a seed person within a mile, they'll hear <laughs> that you're there looking for seeds right. and they'll bring in their best stuff. You've got yours and then it's a party, you yeah. know, and that's really, and then you've got friends for life and you get to hear the story that comes with the seeds, which is really important. Holly says, someone smashed a pumpkin on my neighbor's porch and the following summer pumpkin plants started growing next to the porch. Yeah, there you it's go. It's really that simple. Say thank you. <laughs> yeah. and, and save the pumpkin seeds. Yeah. Uh, Deborah says, I saved heirloom zucchini squash seeds, Costata Romanesco, cured on the plant. Are they true to variety if they are next to another zucchini? She says she likes the performance of that variety. Well, you know, so um, you are true is a subjective, if not pl platonic idea. 
It doesn't exist in plants. Mm -hmm. They're constantly changing. And it's really possible if you have two different zucchinis growing in the same garden that there are some crosses. Mm -hmm. But it's also really possible there aren't. So how do you find out? Save the seeds and plant them. Plant them out. And, yeah. and you know what? Even if you don't like the best what comes up because of the cross or the other variety that comes up or whatever it is, um, you can still eat everything or give them to your neighbors or trade them, right? You're still gardening. And then sharpen your eye, look for the ones that are exactly like the ones you want, tie a little ribbon on them, <laughs> let them, you know, blow it out and go to seed for later. And then that way only save the ones from your true zucchinis that now have two years of adaptation in your garden to your particular climate, which is you're gaining every time you grow on safe seeds where you are. Yeah. So that's really what you want to do. Now, if you're a commercial farmer, you know, if you're going to work every day and you've got 15 acres of zucchinis and you're looking for seed, it would take you a number of generations to make that your line, so to speak, uniform enough doing this this way you know, to get it to work at a commercial level. But, you know, as a home gardener, you can eat them every year, all the off, the so-called off types and get closer to what you want. And my guess is, and this is what I've seen happen over and over and over again now, is that your idea of what true is and what off type is will evolve in this process. Mm. And you'll actually end up saving to something that you never dreamed that you would start saving in the beginning because you're listening now. You you got a dance going. It's talking to you. Yeah. Right? And that's the magic. That's where the best breeders are that I know now. They're saying it's like Dr. Carol Depe who you know taught genetics at Harvard for 25 years. She said, you know, the more I listen and the more I look and I more the more I let those plants tell me what to save <laughs> better off it gets. Yeah. She said, I came in with all preconceived notions, rigid, how this was all going to work. And he said, she said, I've let go of all of that. Like Joseph has now. And I'm, I'm just in there, you know, dancing with it and trying to find out, find my way forward. And for me, that's where the magic is. You know, in fact, it's so magic. I don't have to go to a church building now to go to church. <laughs> that's where I go to church in your garden. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we're so set on us knowing better than nature. We need to set that aside. <laughs> we need yeah. to set that aside. Um, this is a great question from Holly. How do you know when you can name your own variety versus using and giving credit to someone else for that variety? Well, uh, there are no seed naming police. Tell you. <laughs> Nobody's ever going to come. Nobody's ever been busted. Mm -hmm. What you want is respect in your community. If you're doing this, you want people that respect you for what you're doing. And to do that, what I've learned is that give credit where credit's due. Mm -hmm. That builds community and builds respect. That's just all yeah. there is to it. But there are, you know, I think there are way more opportunities for people now to start naming things. You know, number one is the person who gave you the seats may give you the green light, say, yeah, you go ahead and name it. I wasn't interested in naming it, or I've got 40 other varieties I'm working on, you know? Somebody needs to name this because when you name it, you're owning it, right? And that's what we've lost is this ownership of our own seeds and our own sense of place. 
around it. So it's a really important thing. But again, we're we're looking, you know, we're growing up in systems where there's externalized laws and rules, and there's police to police those things or fines for it. And they're they're just not there. Yeah. And so as a community, we're starting to figure this out more and more on our own. And I got it, you know, I've gotten into big arguments uh, uh, with people around that, but I do believe this has happened more than we give it credit. And I think what we're learning now is that a lot of that was racial, you know, and when the, when the, uh, the there's more uh, extant diversity in heirloom vegetables in the United States, in North America, in Appalachia, than there is anywhere else in the country. There's just more different kinds of varieties of everything. Mm-hmm. Showing, you know, that there was this huge system to create all that stuff and the immigrants that came there and the gardening was good or whatever. And it's not unusual to find two or three or four or five names for the same exact plant, depending on whether you live north of the Mason Dixon line or south of it mm-hmm. into different communities, whether you fought for the Union Army or the Confederate Army, which you couldn't eat that damned Yankee those damned Yankee, you know, John Brown beans or whatever they were, but you're going the same beans. They just have a different name. And so I, you know, we have a lot to learn about that whole thing, but I'm a big, if you have to make a mistake, this is my own personal name it because, (laughs) because what the world needs now is people um, that take care of their own heirloom treasures. We need seed stewards. And if Mm -hmm. stewarding will help you and your family take care of it for generations, like pops tomato, that, that Penn talks about, you know, that was a hundred year old heirloom that was brought to, for, uh, to Colorado that she ran into that almost died out, that some of the grandkids gave her seeds to, you know, and they named it Pops because it was their grandfather's and that was his nickname. Well, if, if it's Pops tomato name that'll save that tomato, do it. That's what we need. You know, create your story so that everyone around you has reverence for it and, yeah. and use that as your guide. That story is, you're right, it, it creates magic around it, kind of like Mrs. Burns' lemon basil. Yes, you know, yeah, that Native yeah. Seed Search has. Yeah. And I was lucky enough to work with Barney Burns, whose mother was the one who, who brought that oh, to good. Tucson in the early 1900s. Wow. Kiersey says, can I plant winter rye or winter wheat early in the spring and grow them to maturity in Colorado, or should I wait till the fall and plant them then? You know, that that's another place where we get hung up in categories that are important for industrial farming. In other words, if you're a, a wheat or a rye farmer um, and you have two seasons to grow, usually a winter season, what, they, what that means is they'll plant in the fall and mm-hmm. the plants will get up a bit and then the snow will come and they'll survive the winter. And then they, they come early in the spring and you can harvest in June or something. So that would be a winter wheat. And then... Um, a summer wheat would be one you'd plant as soon as you could in the spring and you'd harvest in July, August, September, depending on the variety. And you damn well better know what you're planting, you know, what variety you have that favors either one of those if you're growing a thousand acres. What we're learning, you know, there are 30,000 varieties of wheat growing in the United States, probably or around the world in 1900. 30,000 different, you know, wow. viable on some commercial small scale or whatever personal village level. And so there's huge diversity out there and we're starting to dip our hands back into that and find it again. And so, so then the question becomes, Oh, is that a winter wheat or a summer or a spring wheat? And you go, you know, I'm not sure that people, you know, 4,000 years ago in the fertile crescent had that distinction. 
And so what we're learning is that um, if you're doing this small scale and you can, and you have enough seed, try it both. You know, at Native Seed Search, we planted white Sonora in October, November, December, January, February, March, April, and May one year, just to see when it would work. Turns out it worked really well planted in November, which was a winter wheat thing, but it also worked pretty well planted, you know, in April, you know, so, you know, it's almost a two crop. And so you can't allow those labels. I think as we're small scale, we're rediscovering, we're re, you know, um, inhabiting this space, you know, that's another one of those um, labels that I'm learning to question. So question everything with seeds. That's my takeaway. Well, and there may be one seed in your winter wheat. You know, maybe everything else gets wiped out because it's too hot this summer. Maybe you mm-hmm. wait till spring and you plan you're going to do it as a summer wheat and it all gets wiped out, but there's one plant that makes it because it's got the built-in drought tolerance from somewhere on the in the Egyptian pyramid days, you know, which mm-hmm. is really possible. Yeah. Right? Then that's what you save and you're starting your own summer variety of that variety of wheat for your area. That's what you have to be looking for. There you go. You know, go hard on them. If you have a complete disaster, that's the best thing that ever happens to you. Because if anything makes it at all, boy, you've got something that made it through your disaster. Yeah. And you're down the road to overcoming it in the future. So I got one more question for you and then we're going to wrap it up. Remember the whole thing that happened last year where China was shipping seeds oh, yeah. randomly to people in the United States, do you have any, did you catch any more data on why? Nobody, I, as far as I know, nobody ever figured that out, the real source of that. And, well, you know, in some ways that's disturbing. What is it? What's going on? Who's doing this? Um, but, you know, we're living in uh, an era where there are millions of people subscribing to weird theories about things yeah. that are going on. You know, the rabbit holes of the, the uh, social media have yeah. created all sorts of, you know, it's almost like kabuki theater some days. <laughs> and so, you know, I've learned, you know, I did some research and um, it really, I, d- I have not heard any deleterious or dangerous things that have come out of that. I don't know who grew them and who didn't. And I think somebody said the USDA was asking people not to grow them just in case. Yeah. I'm not sure I wouldn't, nobody sent them to me. And if I had an isolated place, I, I don't know, you know. Go home and see what happens. Yeah, what if they're gifts? Don't tell anybody. They're, they're from the Qigong, you know, seed saving group in some mountainous area of China. And they're just gifts for all of us. You know, maybe that's what they were. I don't know. I like to, I'd like to stay positive. Ah, uh, well, there you go. Thank you very much. Once again, Bill, I so appreciate it. Um, let's see here. Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. Where do we find out more about the grain trials? RockyMountainSeeds.org. And you can look at our programs and pull down and, and uh, it's our heritage grain trials. We've got about 200 grains available that we found that we think will work in our region going back, you know, 14,000 years. Some of the varieties wow. we've got the einkorns and emmers and spelts and, you know, and they're higher. Einkorn's 42% protein. It's amazing wow. uh, health food. You know, and, yeah. and now we found a variety that um, free threshes that's not oh, doesn't wow. have a hole, so it doesn't have to be de-hulled. So that's the kind of stuff we're looking for. And we'd love to have as many nice. people as possible involved, you know. And then our uh, um, we've got seed steward programs. We're starting a seed teacher uh, training mm-hmm. um, next week. So if you want to learn how to be a seed teacher, 
You know, we, we've done our own seed schools now for 10 years. We've trained hundreds of students. Um, we figure now that's not enough. We need millions of seed yeah. savers. Yeah. You know, there's 120 million gardeners. Why aren't they all saving seeds? So right. we need more seed teachers. So we're teaching people how to do their own seed schools. Well, and the bonus of the seed teachers program is that uh, you get into seed school online for free if you sign up for the seed. Right. And that's something that, you know, is available through the urban farm. So yeah, that's really exactly. a great. Exactly. And that's, that's a, a tight little program. If you want to learn how to save seeds, you know, that's like 35 years experience boiled down into a seven day seed program that we did for years. And then we boiled that down into a seed school in a day. And then we took that into seven one hour lectures. Yep. And so that's a highly refined, like no bullshit, just get to the point, you know, and each, uh, how to save them, you know, how to find them, what the industry is like. So, you know, your way around, you know, how to start seed libraries. It's all in there. It's great. And you can find out about that at seedschoolonline.com. Yeah, that's good. Right. And then we're, you're starting to do seed up Saturdays. Oh yeah. So through Urban Farm U, the fourth Saturday of February, May and August, we do uh, a three hour session called Seed Up Saturday, where we're, you know, just teaching people about different things around seed saving. So uh, definitely check up seedupsaturday.com for the next uh, upcoming event. That's the energy that we learn to create in our seed ups, right? Yeah. You know, and we can't do them. We, people aren't coming yet. And so, uh, yeah, you can come to the Seed Up um, Seed Education part and Excitement part and ask questions. It'll be online like this. So it'll be great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, Bill. Thank you so much. Thank I, you. As always, I appreciate it. And thank you, everybody out there for showing up. Uh, for those of you that are listening on the podcast, thanks for listening to the Urban Farm Podcast as well. So as I always like to say, farm out and we will catch you on the flip side. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.